HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Amy Zeidelman, co-founder and CEO of Soom Foods, the tahini brand known by every restaurant chef and now more and more consumers across the U.S. Amy and her two sisters started Soom with the mission to share their love of tahini, and 10 years later, they've grown beyond a stellar food service business into a platform brand, including a variety of tahini and their latest launch, Tahini Bites. And I just want to specifically shout out the cherry chocolate tahini bite. Everyone needs to try that. So welcome, Amy. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. I mean, I, so, I mean, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) I just, I started thinking about the cherry tahini bite and salivating a little bit, as you said, thank you for, you know, hosting me. And then I just kind of got myself wound up, but I have been thinking a lot about the cooking school lately and about all of the brands that, you know, I saw sort of launching and starting in 2012. And it's kind of interesting to me how it's starting to feel like full circle in a way. Like I was talking to, I don't know, you know, even Van Leeuwen ice cream was around that time and Sir Kensington was around that time. And and then, and you guys, um, and it wasn't a product that we sold in the front, but it was the tahini that every single teacher and chef that came into the cooking school felt very strongly about using when they were teaching Middle Eastern. Um, and it got me just to thinking you had like chef love very, very early, um, so I did a little research, and I know that the first sale you made uh, was to Zahav in 2013. And I'd love to just hear sort of like what happened before that, what happened, you know, during that, and and really was the plan always to start with the restaurant chefs and how that evolved. It is amazing, right? When I started Zoom and was talking for to people for advice. A lot of people said, if you can make it to 10 years, you'll realize things kind of <laughs> play out. You know, uh, making it to yep. 10 years was a really huge motivating goal of mine, of mine and my sisters. And making it 10 years, it's amazing. I mean, more and more people now recognize the brand and uh, and have that timely experience with them where it's like, Oh, I knew you way back when you seem a little Mm -hmm. bit more valid now, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. and so many people Mm -hmm. that we meet now think we're younger than we are. And they're Mm -hmm. surprised to hear that it's been 10 years of working at this. Um, but 
We started Zoom as an idea in 2011. I was a senior at University of Delaware. I studied interpersonal communication, no business myself. My Mm -hmm. oldest sister, Shelby, studied business, though, undergrad and was living in Israel for the year where our middle sister, Jackie, had been living for almost five years. And Jackie was dating her now husband, Omri, at the time. And Omri was in the tahina industry in Israel, as they call it in Israel, tahina mm-hmm. across the Middle East. We call it here in the States, tahini. And Shelby started asking some of those more traditional entrepreneurial questions like, why isn't tahini more popular in the States? And mm-hmm. is there an opportunity to make a business out of it? And what we found was that most people had no idea what tahini was. If they Mm -hmm. did, they could only find it on the bottom shelf of the international aisle with dust on the lids and very separated. If they were buying it, they were only using it to make hummus and throwing the jar away six months later, Mm -hmm. never even recognizing a brand name that they chose to purchase. And so uh, as you can relate and maybe other people listening can relate to, instead of running in the other direction, why would you start anything that has to do with this product? We saw it as an <laughs> entrepreneurial opportunity. <laughs> and we said, why don't we make tahini a more popular ingredient in the American market? And that's what we've set out to do really after 12 yeah. years now. I mean, it's funny because I, you know, we, as you know, like we have a, a tahini sauce and, um, even just doing, you know, research for that, like we basically just, our roadmap was like all the sauces that we make that I have in my cookbook, let's just figure out a way to commercialize. Um, so it started with the chimichurri and the romesco. We had a peanut sauce that our co-packer couldn't do peanuts. So we made it a cashew sauce, but everything is in the cookbook basically <laughs> that like we make. Um, and when we, you know, we were going to launch this golden tahini, I think it was something, and this was, I mean, I, 2019, I mean, this was already seven years after you started. It was still something like 30% of Americans knew what it was, recognized it. <laughs> um, I mean, it, I mean, it's gotten, you know, thanks, I think, in large part, obviously, to you, but also to Ottolenghi, you know, to, I mean, I guess that that flavor profile, the health benefits of sesame, all of that, like it has grown a lot in sort of awareness of what it was. But I think what you did also was just make it, you know, kind of build a brand out of what could basically ostensibly be just a commodity food, you know, that, that people trust. And that started with the chefs, which is just very cool. Yeah, going back to that first question, we we didn't fully understand the opportunity in food service. We knew that it was part of our market research. Being based in Philadelphia and Mike Solomonov, Zahav Restaurant, he was one of the people that we asked about tahini. You know, what tahini are you using here? Mm-hmm. And he had the same answer as most of the home cooks, which was, I have no idea what it's called. It's not good. And I wish I had something better. And mm-hmm. so that is one of the most significant things that gave us the push to start working on that first import or actually the first import was on the way to feel like, Oh, maybe there's another channel here besides all the lists of grocery stores that I made. I mean, when you're familiar with tahini, you realize that tahini can be used for everything. Mm-hmm. I had lists of smoothie shops. I had lists of ice cream stores, every co-op, every grocery store, every falafel shop, every restaurant that had hummus on their appetizer menu. I had a list of to drop off a sample of Zoom. And what was so exciting about food service was as much as people had no idea what tahini was in this consumer world, people did know what it was in the restaurants and the chefs did know what it was. They might not have had access to good tahini, but at least they knew what it was. Um, And so although it wasn't a deliberate strategy of ours, it emerged very quickly, the benefits of food service and selling to chefs. First of all, they eat more tahini and buy it more often. 
And mm-hmm. also they can help influence and educate mm-hmm. the consumers as it relates to what this ingredient is. So yes, autolanguages and, and all these things, but it's really been, we give a huge testament to the restaurants that have put tahini on their menus, on their dessert menus, in their drinks over the past 10 years. And they've really been the people to contribute to the growth Absolutely. of its acquisition in the market. Yeah. I mean, I see it with our chimichurri too. You know, I mean, similarly, I think it was, it was around 50%, you know, when we launched chimichurri now, you know, you see it. it, I mean, I think consumers follow the ways of the food service industry in a lot of ways. People think maybe a food service is just sort of big vats of things going to hotels or, you know, but if you think about it, who's, who's making you aware of an ingredient or a flavor profile, it's the, it's the restaurant that you get to go to, you know, that special occasion or that takeout place that, you know, you're like, what is this sauce, you know? And, and then it starts to become, you know, the bone apps and the, you know, New York times and, you know, the media starts to pick up on this new ingredient and now everyone starts to think about it. And then of course they're the, the sort of first adopters, but, um, it's really, it's been really cool to watch. And I had a really very good time doing sort of my deep dive into Zoom when I was planning because it, it struck me that it was, I, I had the feeling that it was mostly food service for a long time. Um, and, and it turns out, I mean, from what I read, it's like, it was like close to 80% of the business until COVID happened. And what it just reminded me of was just you had planted these incredibly firm roots in the ground. And then all of a sudden, now you have this opportunity. It's almost like now, you know, you have these strong roots. Now you get to just go and knock down doors and retail, which is a really fun place to be, as opposed to, I think, a lot of brands that you know, they get out of the gate really quick in retail and then there's not much else to do other than continue to promote and then, you know, try to get more doors, more velocity, et cetera. So it, I mean, I know you said it wasn't necessarily the, you know, the plan, but I mean, how did it end up being sort of 80% of the business and then what happened in COVID? It's a really great question. Um, We were lucky enough. Well, a few things happened over the course of those first five years. Mm -hmm. The first thing was that we innovated far too prematurely and we created Mm -hmm. a line of tahini dips that actually you uncovered. We don't talk about them very often. (laughs) They're refrigerated. So I empathize and admire everything you're building with Haven's Kitchen because we launched a line of refrigerated dips. Not only did people have no idea what tahini was, but we Mm -hmm. did not understand the costs and the resources needed to execute a refrigerated product. We had um, brought on poor leadership. It was a lot of um, learning from our mistakes. And Mm -hmm. that experience pushed us back to food service. We said, okay, we saw the deepest challenges and mistakes of retail. We don't have what it takes to do retail. We don't have the right people. We don't have the right capital. What if we go back and focus on food service? What can we accomplish with that? And it was amazing. You know, when we alleviated the demands of retail, where I was in a grocery store demoing every night and every weekend morning, or going to the shelves and pulling off old product to replace it with fresh product, or not even just pulling it off, we'd go in and we'd buy a couple of of those tubs, you know, to make it seem like velocity was moving before we decided to replace it with fresher product. It pushed us away from retail and we said no to retail. And it was the most Mm -hmm. freeing experience to say, We'll go into retail only if you ask for us. We weren't pitching to retailers. And Mm -hmm. that space to allow it to grow organically was really freeing and really uh, much easier than what it takes as you've uncovered and exposed through the In the Sauce podcast retail. And it was fun. You know, I love traveling the country and talking to chefs and handing out samples Mm -hmm. and eating at 
the best restaurants. I was like, this is the best job ever. I get to travel yep. and eat and talk to people. And they're really appreciating us for the product. It had nothing, very little to do with the brand. They didn't care what our labels look like. They didn't care what yep. it said on our boxes or what our Instagram, you know, how many followers we mm -hmm. had on Instagram. It was, yep. it was quite frankly, like this utopia that uh, we really embraced and held on to a, for a long time. Because yeah. of though that growth in chef influence and the attention of the media, something that we did that really supported us nationally and saved us during COVID was we put Zoom up on Amazon. Instead of investing mm. into our own website store, we decided mm -hmm. to meet the consumer where they seemed more likely to shop and check out. Right. And we started investing into Prime and having our product available online. So if Bon Appetit wrote about Zoom right. and we weren't there sold was in a stores, place to get it. Yep. Exactly. And that's what saved us leading up to COVID. Right. Really, really important. I mean, there are a couple of things I want to just sort of like tease out for people. Number one is aside from, you know, fresh is really hard as, as everyone who listens to this heard, you know, hears me bemoan all the time. It's all really hard is the reality. Retail is just hard. And I think to your point, you need to be really, really ready to platform out, right? Like, you need to, we, I mean, we're just launching our next line. It's going to probably be, you know, a, I would say Q1 of next year. Mm -hmm. um, because, you, I mean, I see other brands do it. I guess it's, I, I, sometimes it works, you know, where they're just like all of a sudden in 18 different parts of the store and maybe they can sustain that and maybe they have the secret. I've just, I haven't seen it, um, all that often. So, you know, it's almost like you had something that was working, dig into why it's working, figure out how to make, you know, it's always like a door open is easier to open wider than opening a new mm -hmm. door, you know? And so there's so much like meat left on that bone but it's very tempting for founders, myself included, to, to be like, okay, now let's go make a line of this, you know, okay, let's go do this. And you probably saw around you, you know, I mean, we were launching our businesses around the same time. Mine was a brick and mortar, but, you know, I didn't even go on Instagram when it first started in 2012. And then all of a sudden the world, everything was what's on Instagram and you know, you probably felt a little bit like we're this behind the scenes Intel chip of all of these great, you know, meals and restaurants. I'd like to maybe be out in front a little bit more. Um, but, but the way you did it was, I mean, it, you know, I'll, I'm going to give you 90% forethought, 10% luck. Um, it was really <laughs> smart. And then I think the second thing that's really thoughtful here is, Everyone needs to know that even if you aren't building necessarily that consumer facing of a brand at the moment, or in our case, like you're not building a direct to consumer business, you do every press outlet in the world is looking for a link to send people to. If that link is something that they can shop from, you are just saving the consumer another click of something to have to go buy it, they don't have the energy or time to keep clicking. So you giving them like a place to go that's very easy where they can add it to their already, you know, made cart and they don't need to set up an account and they don't need to give you their credit card and all that just made it very, very easy for like when you said when the bone apps of the world would write about you specifically as a brand. So I'm definitely picking up what you're putting down, Amy. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I mean, it took a, it took the lesson of a failed line for us to recommit mm -hmm. to one product, but we've really only been selling one thing for 10 years, and that's tahini. Mm -hmm. We have 
uh, dark chocolate sea salt tahini that has complemented our product mm-hmm. in the nut butter section. Our tahini outsells it four to one, uh, you know, yep. um, easy on shelves. And so selling one thing is a lot easier than selling lots of things. It's um, still yeah. by no means easy, but we took the easy route. You know, we didn't raise any capital and we did not have the constitution for retail. And so we <laughs> did what came to us and it alleviated it, remove the potential friction that brands experience when launching because we were able to build our credibility and demand off of the shelves as opposed to driving people to our product once we were on shelves where it's a lot more expensive to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And not just expensive in terms of like the shelf stuff, but you know, I mean, the marketing investment, the education piece, right? Like Instead of having to educate everyone on what to do with tahini, you were, you know, getting into restaurants and letting them educate people on what to do with tahini, which is a really good strategy. Um, Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about what changed because now we're platforming out and I'm excited about it because of those bites. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm back with Amy Zeitelman, co-founder and CEO of Zoom. Um, Okay, so let's head into the innovation discussion, because I totally get, you know, the the way that you built and obviously this, this, you know, food services coming back, it got, it got whacked during COVID. So it was, you know, definitely a strategy that made a lot more sense, you know, building up to COVID um, than maybe, you know, launching in food service in 2020. I have talked to brands, you've probably listened to them on this show that were like, Daring, for example, his whole plan was food service. He was like, I'm going to get into restaurants and then, you know, a la even Oatly, you know, they, they did something similar. Um, but then COVID happened and food service got, you know, whacked and you started building out a more consumer facing business. Did that then give you the confidence you know, you said you didn't have the constitution for retail. What, what changed, I guess, is the question. When COVID hit, it was an interesting time because, of course, our food service supply chain shut down overnight. Um, you know, we had distributors canceling orders. We had chefs asking if they could just not get charged or send product back. And we just said, okay, to everything. We, we didn't know what was going to happen. We had the luxury of having a shelf stable product that we were able to be patient, just say, whatever you need, we will do. And we'll get through this together. What happened almost overnight was that our sales in our consumer channels, the 250 or store grocery stores that we were in, and especially on Amazon, just quadrupled, if not more so overnight, pretty much. And we've Mm -hmm. very quickly shifted from the 
the logistical demands of being a food service product, which was like pretty much shipping pallets to shipping two packs, you know, to to filling Mm -hmm. our Amazon prime with two packs of tahini. And that was, that is what gave us the confidence to say it's now or Mm -hmm. never. We were just able to penetrate so much faster than we would have been able to Mm -hmm. without this scenario bringing that's, that was, uh, inspiring people to bring these ingredients into their homes that they hadn't been for that they hadn't before. And so that is what gave us the timing kind of to say it's now or never. And so we brought on um, a marketing person and we brought on a chief growth officer through acquisition of another brand. We we can talk about that a little bit more. Until then, was it just the three sisters no, it wasn't. My Shelby okay. was the CEO at the time. Actually, Shelby had just stopped being CEO when she had her third child. My sister Jackie still lives in Israel. CEO. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we like, I don't feel like it right now. Like I can't deal years. anymore. Can you just be CEO for the next chunk of time? I'm going to go over here and do ops. Okay, fine. Well, um, literally, yeah. that was the conversation. My sister sat me down right. and said, I'm about to have my third kid. This is just absolutely insane. I can't can't leave the company the way it needs to be. It's time for you to step in here. And we had begun to grow the team. So we had brought on a salesperson to support my efforts in business development. We had brought Mm -hmm. on a logistics coordinator to oversee orders and send purchase orders. And at that time, we had one person in our warehouse, which also might be different about Zoom is we've always kept our fulfillment in-house. Even though we contract Mm -hmm. out manufacturing, we store all of our tahini in Philadelphia and we pack all of our direct-to-consumer orders for the website. We pack all of our pallets. We do all of our own fulfillment in-house. Before COVID, Mm. it was one warehouse person, Rick, still with us, you know, love Rick, one logistics coordinator. And when, uh, and, and my sister who had just stepped out from being CEO because she had her third baby, Jackie, who's lived in Israel this whole time, has always overseen our relationships with our manufacturers, since most of Mm -hmm. our manufacturing is still done in Israel. And so it was, the team was running, we had a marketing coordinator as well, and COVID hit, everybody stopped coming into the office, The the, the company shuts down for a few days until I realized we can keep selling. And so myself, Mm -hmm. Emil, our logistic coordinator and Rick, our one warehouse guy, we like, you know, tried to do all these safe things like hazmat suits and whatever we thought had to be Mm -hmm. done to go in to process all of these orders that were coming through our website and on Amazon and the like. And so our team had about five or six people maybe before COVID, but during COVID we quadrupled our warehouse staff. Uh, So now we have four people in our warehouse that oversees Mm -hmm. the demands of Amazon, direct to consumer and our distributor orders. We brought on Mm -hmm. a marketing professional to help oversee a brand refresh because the brand Mm -hmm. was not positioned for consumer sales or for success on shelves. And we acquired a business in order to bring on their founder to oversee retail growth and sales strategy. So I wanted to, I mean, there's so many things now. And also it's so cute because you're the only person who, after I sent the draft and I said, okay, here's the questions. It's just a guide. It's not a script, yada, yada. You wrote back, can I ask you questions too? Which I thought was really funny. No one's ever asked me that. And like, of course you can totally ask me questions, but I just wanted to side note that. Um, there are a couple things there. One is you bought the this other, it was like a tahini butter business to to get the guy, like to get the founder. Yeah. Was that actually like, so can you tell me a little bit about that? Because yeah. it's interesting to me. <laughs> so Daniel Ehrenheim, hi, Danielle, if you're listening. Um, he actually reached out in 2017. He had been in a position growing a CPG brand of natural gums and said, you know, I'm so passionate about Tahini. I love your product. I'm curious if you have room on your team for retail growth. And we said, we hate retail. No, thank you. Like, good luck with everything. Um, we're focusing on food service. And he went off and started his own Tahini 
product company. He made a line of tahini spreads more likened to a substitute for peanut butter or almond butter Mm -hmm. and just was getting it off the ground in 2019 and obviously hit major headwinds come 2020 when they couldn't expand into stores. And he very um, thoughtfully reached out and said, hey, I just want to let you know, I ended up starting a company called Seedable. I was wondering if we can connect to just, you know, see what's going on in the world of Zoom. And I can tell you more about Seedable. And I'll never forget, I forwarded the email to my sister Shelby and her reply was bring it on, you know, like thinking it was more of like a competitor play. But we've always had this approach that all tides rise together. Like the more people coming into Tahini, the better. This product needs so much consumer education. Yep. There's plenty of room for lots of brands. And so I was yep. eager to connect with Danielle. And really from the first call, I realized, wow, he has the experience in retail that we don't have. And we mm. have the infrastructure of a brand that he mm-hmm. hadn't been able to materialize. And so mm-hmm. we were able to acquire the business through an equity trade um, and bring him on as our chief growth officer. It was great because he had raised capital and brought on strategic investors that laid the foundation for us to begin our first fundraise as Zoom. Um, And so it really just was aligned values wise, Mm -hmm. aligned mission wise that it worked out very, very well. I love it. And I mean, it, it partly, it sounds like, you know, first you were like, okay, we don't like retail and then retail happened. And then, you know, now you're really thinking about innovation. And I mean, again, I keep going back to the cherry bites cause they're really freaking good, but you know, did you realize at some point like, okay, or, or was it partly Daniel also who was like, okay, the, the jars of tahini are going to do X. People buy it X number of times a year. Maybe the chocolate one is like a nice to have, you know, all of that. But where we're really going to see growth is in snacks. And we got we to gotta get the consumer to understand this as an ingredient a la peanut butter crunchy things instead of just like peanut butter as, you know, something in a tub. Is that, was that, kind of where your brains went and was he part of that thought process? He, he was part of that thought process because as all good salespeople uh, should advocate for, it's for more products to sell, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. very hard to sell only one thing in a couple of sizes. And so he was eager to expand the product portfolio for the sake of revenue and strategy. But really what brought it to light was we always knew that the tahini category would be capped, right? I mean, this is Mm -hmm. a growing category and it still is not huge. And it was through our conversations with investors or potential investors, I should say, Mm -hmm. where they said, how big can Tahini really get, Mm -hmm. you know? And that on top of the decade of selling Tahini (laughs) and realizing that most people you know, Q Haven's kitchen sauces don't want to bring the tahini home to make the golden tahini sauce in their kitchens. They want Mm -hmm. to buy something already made. And we knew that we just didn't know what would be the right product that was um, complementary to the brand and aligned with trends. And so we had been considering product extensions and new lines for many years. And quite frankly, as um, the founder and the leader of the business, I think it's a reflection on on me that I was more comfortable growing tahini than I was developing new products and innovating. And that's how the brand grew. It was without innovation right. and it was through market penetration of just tahini. And it really took the right minds coming together saying it's time to prove that Zoom has credibility as a brand be- besides mm-hmm. this one product that it, yep. you know, that we could go out with an, a new product. And so evaluating trends like dates and seeing what flavor profiles or really consumption behaviors were prevalent and consistent over the 10 years, these date yep. energy bites and these make mm-hmm. at your them at home balls. It was funnily enough, one of the first recipe cards we ever made for Zoom was a date, tahini and nut and coconut ball. And here mm-hmm. we are 10 years later saying mm-hmm. this is a product that can actually go to market, having never even thought about that five years yeah. ago. And so, yeah. 
No, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, when I, I think I wouldn't, you know, I would just say I beat myself up sometimes a little bit too. Like, gosh, I wish I had this product a year earlier. You know, I'm, I'm not a founder, um, who dies to innovate, you know, or lives Mm. to innovate. I'm not, I, you know, I've been told like, I'm, I'm a slow and steady wins the race kind of gal. And I'm not necessarily, I've been told quite a few times that, you know, they want to see more vision, whatever Mm. that means. Um, Mm -hmm. and I have vision, you know, I, I, I do have vision, but I don't, I'm not like, jonesing to make new products every day. And it really has to come to me to feel right. You know, I I, like, if I can't visualize it or I can't see our consumer reaching for it or playing with it, you know, it, it, it feels misaligned. Um, so I, I think you're coming in at the right time with it because it's aligned for you. And, you know, I read some comment that you wrote on, LinkedIn, someone said like, here comes the hockey stick. And you were like a very steady, strategic (laughs) hockey stick. You know, I don't think we are, um, I I think there's some reward for that. I would hope right now. I think that's what we're kind of all starting to see that, that maybe the growth like this is, is a thoughtful growth. And, you know, maybe in this new era of, you know, profitability and longevity and sustainability that, you know, maybe you were right, um, to hold off, you know, to really, because I mean, I guess the next question is, you know, we are finding that we have not only built relationships with consumers as a brand, but we've really built good relationships with retailers. And so when we call and we say, Hey, we're launching this new thing. We'd love your input. We'd love to think about this with you. How would you, you know, they take the call. Um, are you finding that you're able to leverage the relationships with the tahini into new relationships with like the snack folks? Like, is it, is it helpful to you that you're already in the stores with another product? That's right. Yeah, we are having a similar experience where our category managers are really pleased with our performance. They're pleased with how Zoom has grown the category, has performed, has uh, has shown up and kept the product on shelves during a tumultuous time. And so it has been relatively easier, and if not easy to say, that mm-hmm. we can connect with the category buyer for snacks and the likes. And that's yeah. something that it's at the end of at the end of the day something that i always reflect on are the two most important resources it's time and money it's whether it's professionally or personally you're either spending the time to do it or you're spending the money to make it happen faster or without you and that's how i feel about taking your time to grow the business is if Mm -hmm. you have the luxury of time, you can grow, it can grow frictionless. You can get Mm -hmm. more yeses than nos because when the timing's right, people happen to say yes. And so we've always really embraced that. We've always had the luxury of time because we did not take on a lot of investment or felt too much pressure to grow faster. Although that is typically the reason why we're not taking on a lot of investment is because we're not growing fast enough, it seems. But at the end of the day, the light at the end of the tunnel for me is profitability. And when Zoom made the switch to consumer two years ago, we invested a ton in the business. We lost more in the business over the last two years Mm -hmm. than we did combine the eight years before then. And it was exciting and it really fueled our ego to see this brand come to shape and um, and the talk of innovation and the talk of growth. But at the end of the day, when I was watching the red just get bigger and bigger Mm. and bigger, I realized this is not sustainable. And quite frankly, it wasn't a reflection of my own values, which was our father Mm -hmm. taught us. I mean, my dad, God bless him, has a list of 10 rules to live by. And the first one is spend less than you earn. And I was like, Mm -hmm. you know, looking at us saying, how did we get to this place? And how can I look at my team, you know, my four warehouse employees and say, we might not have jobs next year if I'm not able to raise this next round. And I just totally put the brakes on it. I said, you know, I 
am glad of everything that we accomplished with the investment that we made in Zoom over the last two years. We got into Whole Foods nationally. The brand is well positioned for launching into new national retailers like we are today. We have proven processes for sales launches mm-hmm. and you know trade spend and shopper marketing, or we're working those out. But I'm not willing to do it at a loss anymore. And if that means Zoom will grow slower, but I can assure yep. my team that they will have jobs next year if they want them here. That is really what means the world to me. So it was an interesting experience to give in and let the ego fly, you know, Mm -hmm. really put the brand first. And it's also been a relief to go back to our foundation of business over brand. Yeah, it's funny. I feel so similarly, you know, and it's funny because I, I mean, I think part of it is ego. A part of it is just you feel like you're doing something wrong at some point Mm -hmm. when enough people are like, you're not growing fast enough. People still today are like, are you going to double this year? And I'm like, we could double this year if we did a couple of dumb things, you know, it's unlikely that we're, you know, I mean, yeah, a couple things could happen. You know, we have new, we have new, you know, customers. Um, But, you know, if I'm chasing a double, then what I'm doing is I'm opening Costco at a 10% margin, which is basically Mm -hmm. a zero, or I'm opening some account where I'm just going to be buying shelf space at some point because it's not the right consumer for us. Like this is what it means when people say, have, have the fortitude to say no. It's not like no, because this doesn't, you know, this isn't necessarily the right place. It's no, because this is not going to be a profitable business. And, you know, I I think we've talked about this on the show too. There are some retail accounts that, you know, going in off the bat are less about sales and more about, you know, the marketing. Costco can be really good as like a volume driver in some cases, but I would say for our size, probably not even that much, especially not if it's, you know, if it's one run and then you're done you know? So it is, it's exciting. It's momentum. You're, you're doing the FOMO thing. You got lots of stuff to put up on LinkedIn, but at the end of the day, to your point, you know, what are we trying to build here? You know, and for who, you know, I mean, I think people are starting to understand that that top line, yes, of course it's important to show growth, but who's, why is, why is 50, 60, 70% growth somehow like something to be like ashamed of, you know, like it's, it's like, it's, I mean, especially if you're growing in the accounts that you're already in and they require no additional, you know, investment, you know, it's, it, I think it's the, I think it's thoughtful. Um, so before we, you know, start wrapping up, I wanted to know if there were any specific questions when you said that you had questions for me, because it did pique my interest. And I'm like, huh, what kind of questions? Because I feel like I just like, you know, I just talk all the time. I, I was just wondering if you've ever considered food service with your line of sauces. It's a very good question. Um, yes. Uh, you know, we hear it all the time. Chimichurri, is a very hard product for back right. of house kitchen staff to make. It requires a lot of chopping and blending and it's hard to get it just right. We do have some restaurants that order our sauces and we see them on, you know, fair and stuff. And I, I call and I'm like, really? Like, what are you doing? You know, how are you, why are you buying, you know, pouches? And then, and they like basically take the pouches and put them into like a food you know, like a big quart container and then, but not a lot. Um, so mm-hmm. we do see it as like a big potential. I think of food service sort of in two ways. One is, you know, a volume driver for sure. Right. Um, and I have, unlike what you did for the first eight years, I've been very focused on building a brand. Mm-hmm. So I focus less on volume, more on brand building. You can see that my marketing team is a, is a bigger yes. team than my sales or my ops team. I focused a lot on content um, because I d- 
didn't want the fresh sauce to be the business. I wanted it to be the first product of, of a, mm-hmm. of a real sort of home kitchen business. Um, so that's one sort of theoretical piece to it. It's just like you said, you prioritize and it was not in the top three priorities. Um, that said, you know, there's also sort of constraints around our manufacturer and, you know, Mm -hmm. just getting the pouch line getting going and figuring all that out and making sure we had the right equipment and training a new team. Like we're at a a really big family co-packer, like family owned co-packer, but this is not their core business. We Mm -hmm. found them because they had HPP and they had the machine, but no one in the country had HPP and pouch filling. So Mm -hmm. we partnered with them very early to build us a line that could pouch fill and HPP in the same place, which obviously just like saved us a lot. Um, And so there, that it would be, it wouldn't be easy for them to just figure that out. And again, if I'm pushing them on growth and getting a faster filler and making sure that we can do a three pack or making sure that, you know, we can continue to innovate with fresh flavors, getting them to under, to, to sort of put things in pillow packs and, you know, re restructuring that supply chain is also, um, a challenge. So it's there. It's very much something that we talk about. We get incoming probably every day, um, for all of it. And it's something that I see as like extra sort of fruit to go grab. But right now I'm just very focused on building, you know, the brand in the five ounce pouch, you know, and getting those velocities where I want them to be. And then, you know, as we launch into another part of the store, um, hopefully where people just know where to look for us and know where to find us every time they go to any store, which is the big problem right now with our category. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we'll see if the food service opportunity in fresh is as big as what it might be in the new category we're going into, which again will be easier from a supply chain perspective. So it's a very long winded answer, but yeah, that's, that's how we think about it. I think, you know, I think about things the way you think about things. Like you don't have endless time and you don't have endless money and you don't have, you know, people who have endless bandwidth. So, you know, we very much set priorities for the year. You know, they're around, you know, my, everyone knows my thing is around margin and velocity and, um, Obviously, there needs to be this constant kind of drumbeat of new accounts because we just you just need that growth and distribution to get to you know the scale that you want to be for tolling, et cetera, all that. Um, but for me, it's just margin improvements and velocity growth and the doors we're in are always just going to be my two main things. And now we have this innovation thing kind of thrown in there. Margins are everything. I call our team margin monsters this year. We're just like yeah. focused on both sides. We're like, nom, 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 any margin. I know. <laughs> I know. No, it's really because, you know, I was talking to someone yesterday. He makes, he makes, he's not in CPG. His, his business is like lithium battery protection things so that if they do per chance explode, it doesn't like make the whole scooter explode kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, it's, he sells to NASA, you know, it's not, it's completely different business, but we were talking and I used to candidly, I kind of used to dread looking at what we were spending on. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of would like look with one eye open and the other eye closed and be like, ugh, and just sort of ho- cross my fingers. Kind of like you said that either the funding would come through or like some big account would happen you know, but I think what we've learned, if we didn't know it before, is like you cannot control incoming. You can't mm-hmm. control sales. You can't control investors. You can control what you spend. You know, it's it's now I find it really fun and we do it quarterly as a leadership team. We go through every line. Do we need this? What is this? Why does this look like this? What is the subscription? And, you know, 
is there any better way we could be making this? Is there anything we can think of that gets us a point here, a point there? Like, you know, what does the GNA look like at this? And what does it look like at this? And all of a sudden you walk out of those meetings feeling like, all right, I have some control here and I feel good as opposed to I'm up at night hoping that Gelson's calls me back, you know, cause right. they might not, who the heck knows what's going on there, you know? Yeah, totally. I, I do want to say also before we come to time, this how much I appreciate the In the Sauce podcast because I listen to it and I go <laughs> on the same roller coaster that I go through every day, which is like some episodes I listen to and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm so smart. Sue's doing everything great. I feel so inspired. Let's go make some big decisions and do this. And other episodes I listen to, I'm like, why am I doing this? Why did I do that? How come I haven't grown faster? It is like the exact roller coaster of just what is really at stake yeah. in this industry. So I just want to commend you for that. If I yeah. had time, I would ask you why you chose a tahini product since tahini is so unknown, but we might not have time I mean, for you I to can tell you it, it, because it's my favorite sauce. I love it. And so what what we try to do with all of them, right? Chimichurri saves you mincing and chopping. Romesco saves you roasting and blending. Tahini, you know, like you said, people, it's not hard. It takes 14 seconds, but I've been teaching home cooks for 25 years. They are, they're, they're, they're not sure how to, when you add a little bit of water, then it seizes up a little bit before you keep stirring it, before it thins out. And then they, it's hard for them sometimes to balance the acid and the salt. And, you know, yours is amazing because it's really smooth and you can just eat it the way it is. But for the most part, a lot of people can't. And so, you know, we just, with, with every one of our SKUs, we try to take some part mm. of that experience and make it just easier, period for home cooks. Um, and it is, you know, I mean, I, I put it on everything. It's my, our golden tahini is all of my kids' favorite. It's my favorite. Um, you know, and adding that little bit of turmeric just makes it so pretty that it just also, it's highly Instagrammable, (laughs) which is nice. Um, exactly. But I mean, I, I think what you're building is amazing. I, um, I, you know, I think it's a really nice roadmap for people to think about, you know, I mean, I love so much of what you said and, you know, not branching out before you're ready, really knowing, building, like knowing what you have, knowing what you have both in terms of good, like a great deep relationship with a network of highly influential people is really good. And knowing what you don't have, which is, okay, we might not have the chops for like a ton of consumer and retailer education right now. That doesn't mean that we won't in a couple of years. So, and I would just say your first product beyond tahini is stellar. So well done. And um, thank you for coming on the show. Liam, thank you so much. I told you 4.57 and I'm one minute under, so I'm very pleased with myself. Um, But again, thank you for engineering as always. People always ask like, how do you do the podcast? And like, I just ask questions and then Liam basically does the rest. So I don't know how to do any of that stuff. So much appreciated to you and Heritage Radio Network. And everyone, I will be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.